0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: We interrupt this broadcast. Before it was history, it was news. It
2: appears as though something has happened
1: in the movie. I said, Those are
2: shots. Man on the moon. We copy it down, Eagle.
3: I shall resign the presidency effective at noon
1: tomorrow. I'm Bill Curtis. It's been said that breaking news becomes the first draft of history. What's overlooked is how deeply we relied on broadcast journalists who met the adrenalized demands of those moments, often with courage and daring. Broadcast journalism has a simple, sober purpose, to keep the public informed through the best and worst of times. But the consequence of that labor is profound. As legendary newsman Walter Cronkite wrote, The free press is the central nervous system of a democratic society. No true democracy can exist without it. History has borne out that wisdom, but before it was history, it was news.
4: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe, it's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be convenient, comfortable. Ah.
3: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At twenty minutes before We take you now to
5: Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Grover's Mills, I guess it's one of the few towns that are that's become famous for something that never happened.
6: Nobody involved with the Mercury Theater up until the moment of airtime, had any confidence that this show would be any good.
2: Hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill, I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on Earth.
0: I'm Brian Williams. It was October 31st, 1938.
7: When I left the broadcast last night, I went into a dress rehearsal for a play that's opening in two days, and I've had almost no sleep
0: As children across the country prepared for their night of trick-or-treating, a 23-year-old named George Orson Welles appeared at a press conference to face the consequences for a Halloween trick he had played on the entire nation the night before, and it hadn't gone over all that well.
7: And I I know less about this than usual. I haven't read the papers yet.
0: Mercury Theatre on the Air was, in its time, a popular theatrical troupe that young Orson Welles ran with producer John Hausman. The night before, the two men had the brilliant idea to present a radio adaptation of the classic H.G. Wells novel, The War of the Worlds. The problem was, most of the radio program about a deadly Martian attack was portrayed as breaking news. Sending panicked listeners fleeing for their lives.
5: They look like tentacles to me. Oh, yeah, I can see the thing's body now it's large, it's
8: large
4: as a bear.
0: That story had unfolded with increasingly dire reports of a rapidly multiplying and advancing army of seemingly indestructible Martian war machines spreading across our helpless nation. And remember, there was no television. Radio was the electronic medium. Listening to the radio in the evening was standard family practice each evening across our country. And to all the folks listening, it sure sounded like we were being invaded.
9: A bulletin is handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country.
0: And even though none of it was real, by the next morning it was clear all hell had broken loose.
7: At the time you were giving this role, were you aware the terror was going on throughout the nation? Of oh, no. course I simply don't know. I can't imagine. I, I had every hope that, uh, that the people would be excited as they would be at a melodrama. We did Dracula and uh, it seemed to me during Dracula I had high hopes that people would uh, react as they do in a movie. One doesn't believe in the radio audience, but you don't know that they're whether they're listening or not. You have no idea how many people are listening and what they're thinking.
0: That day's New York Times headline told the story: "Radio listeners in panic, taking war drama
6: as fact." Radio was
2: new, and we are learning about the effect it has on people. Learned a terrible as...
6: lesson. I think it's easy for us to forget in the 21st century what a revolution the arrival of the radio was, beginning in the 1920s and then going into the 1930s. This is A. Brad Schwartz, historian and author of the book
0: Broadcast Hysteria, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds and the Art of
6: Fake News. The idea that you could have this box in your home that would connect you, uh, not just let you listen in on uh, great events, but let you hear things as they were happening on the other side of the world. There's a series of events, really in the 1930s, and a surprising proportion of them based in and around New Jersey, beginning with the Lindbergh kidnapping in 1932. The Lindbergh baby kidnapping. This is Bernard Richard Hauptmann,
7: 35, whose arrest as Lindbergh ransom collector in the kidnapping has aroused America.
6: Broadcasters are rushing into New Jersey, feeding the American appetite for news. People wanted to hear the latest. The newspapers were not gonna feed that appetite fast enough. This is the first time, really, you have this sort of round-the-clock news coverage. They're inventing it on the fly.
1: Well, here it comes, ladies and
7: gentlemen. We're out now, outside of the hangar, and what a great sight it is. A one.
6: Most famously, perhaps, in 1937, you had the Hindenburg disaster near Lakehurst, New Jersey, announcer Herbert Morrison on the scene, just happening to uh, record the arrival of this airship when it catches fire.
5: It's running and
7: bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning. This fast. is
6: one of the first oh, times that the major broadcast networks are going to break this prohibition they have against using recordings because the... A description of the Hindenburg, a disaster, is so remarkable. Is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world, all oh, the humanity. That they overcome this concern that some people had that if you were to air a recording, you might deceive people into thinking that uh, something is happening live when in fact it is not. That was a real concern that some people had. In 1938, this is when we're getting into the drumbeat that's leading us to the Second World War where uh, Adolf Hitler and and Nazi Germany are deliberately provoking a series of diplomatic crises in Europe.
3: This is Edward Murrow speaking from Vienna. It's now nearly 2.30 in the morning, and Herr Hitler has not yet arrived. No one seems to know just when he will get here, but most people expect him sometime after 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. It's of course obvious after one glance at Vienna that a tremendous reception is being prepared.
6: So suddenly, if you can hear Hitler in your living room, uh, he's a lot scarier and you're more, I think, on edge expecting the worst might actually happen. But it gives people an expectation that at any time, whatever they're listening to, whether it's a music program or a dramatic program, comedy, variety, whatever, that it can be interrupted by this sort of alarming, late-breaking news bullet. And that became a very common experience
0: Orson Welles and his collaborator John Houseman, along with their repertory company, the Mercury Theater, had already mounted a series of acclaimed New York stage productions, including a groundbreaking all-black cast for Macbeth and productions of The Cradle Will Rock and Dr. Faustus. By 1937, Welles' reputation as the boy genius of the New York stage was secure. And his signature baritone made him an in demand radio actor as well.
8: You cannot see me. Who are you? And where are you? I am here in the room, in the
0: shadow. Among his more famous roles was that of Lamont Cranston, a mysterious vigilante crime fighter known as The Shadow.
8: But let me remain, a voice that wakes the guilty conscience. Know me only
2: as The Shadow.
0: But it was Orson Welles' first radio job in 1935 for a series on CBS that was called The March of Time that ultimately may have been his single biggest influence for War of the Worlds. What
6: actually ended up happening in the 1930s, and people forget this, I think, is that there was this development of a new kind of quote-unquote news reporting, which was often termed dramatized news. While War of the
0: Worlds was a radio drama dressed up as a newscast. The
3: March
9: of Time.
0: The March of Time presented the news in the style of a radio drama.
5: Tonight the editors of Time, the weekly news magazine, raised the curtain again on their new kind of reporting of the news. The reenacting of memorable scenes from the news of the week. From the March of Time.
6: They would restage news events in a studio and they would have people, actors, and sound effects technicians recreating the show was initially supposed to be an advertisement for Time magazine. They would dramatize the, the articles that were going to be in that, that week's issue of Time.
3: Thus, in a Washington auditorium this week, General Hugh S. Johnson says farewell to 2,000 of his fellow workers in the NRA. And over the radio, the nation listens in to the valedictory of the man who, in a short 15-month public career, has made himself one of the most colorful characters in recent U.S. history.
9: We're going to do this job!
3: In a goldfish bowl, and suppose some industries abuse to go along with the coach, General, we'll crack right down on them. They say you're not cooperating, General. They say you're coercing. The charge of compulsion is nothing but the invention of big jibbers. Retailers are planning
6: to But just like shows like The Daily Show today, that are meant to be entertainment, but become a source of news, The March of Time through the decade of the 1930s was one of the more famous, one of the more popular, certainly news-ish programs. And one of the people who gets his big break on the March of Time, of course, is Orson Welles. That's where he enters radio in a big way and where a lot of the techniques that are later employed in War of the Worlds come directly out of the March of Time. And then just
0: 18 months before War of the Worlds, Orson Welles was cast in another radio drama that blurred the line between fact and fiction.
3: He warned of this conqueror This one is dangerous. No men of plea there. Ears overhear them. Their words are their murderers. Judged before judgment. Tried after trial, they die as do animals.
0: The drama was called The Fall of the City, and it was written by playwright and poet Archibald MacLeish, with whom Wells had already worked in the theater. While much of the drama is written in verse... McLeish includes a character of a newsman presenting fictional events as if they were actually happening in real time. The actor playing the newsman was Orson Welles.
8: The last defenders are coming. They've whirled from the streets like wild leaves on a wind. The square scatters them. Now they are fewer, ten together, a five.
0: In the course of a typical week, Orson Welles would perform in dozens of radio shows, from dramas to soap operas. To maintain his pace, and don't try this today, he hired an ambulance, flashing lights, wailing siren, the whole bit, to help speed his way through New York City traffic as he dashed from one studio to the next. By 1937, he had appeared on just about every kind of radio show. He had learned the power of the medium from just about every director, actor, orchestra conductor, sound effects artist in New York. All that remained was the one project that would leave a lasting mark on radio itself.
6: He was doing everything that he could get his hands on, and it just became, he became stretched so thin that by the time CBS comes in, having uh, seen the fame that Wells is building in the New York theater world in 1937, the following summer, CBS has a position on the time slot to fill, and they decide to offer it to Wells and Hausman to bring their Mercury Theater onto the air.
3: Orson Welles has come to be the most famous name of our time in American drama. Says Collier's magazine, 23-year-old Orson Welles threw a bombshell into Broadway. The Columbia Network is proud to give Orson Welles the opportunity to bring to the air those same qualities of vitality and imagination that have made him the most talked-of theatrical director in America today.
6: But Welles, because he's heavily involved in the, in the first few productions, you know, Dracula uh, was, their, was their debut episode. But as the show goes on, and, and Wells needs to develop his stage productions, Hausman is responsible for writing several of the adaptations for this, this show early on. By the time we'd gotten to World of the Worlds, uh,
4: which was the renewal of, by CBS of the series. This is Wells
0: collaborator John Hausman, and you may recognize his voice from the movies and his role in the TV series The Paper Chase.
4: Um we just hired another writer, a new writer, who got all of 50 bucks a week for writing a one-full-hour radio show. That was Howard
5: Koch. I was doing the weekly radio plays for the Mercury Theatre of the Air, and uh, the third assignment they gave me was called War of the Worlds.
0: Years later, in 1955, as part of his BBC program called Sketchbook, Orson Welles explained his choice of War of the Worlds.
2: The War of the Worlds was based on H.G. Wells's story of the invasion of the world by the Martians. We did the, the War of the Worlds more or less as a change of pace.
6: The show debuted around the concept of doing what Wells had done on stage, of taking old classic works of literature and making them seem fresh and new again by employing what Wells called the first-person singular technique. War of the Worlds is an unusual show for the Mercury Theater in many respects. The first several episodes, it was much more about picking books with a strong narrative voice, which War of the Worlds is not. In September 1938, Wells had seen how gripping news broadcast work and this very new phenomenon. And he got the idea, as he later put it, that he wanted to do a show that would make it seem as if a crisis was actually happening. Not to fool people into thinking that a crisis is actually happening, but to take that experience, that dramatic power, and move it into a fictional context. Somebody came up with The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells doesn't seem likely that Orson Welles had that idea or that he read the book, but he had some understanding that this was an alien invasion story and it could work, and so he said, great.
0: While retaining the basics of the original War of the Worlds novel, a writer named Howard Koch tinkered with its setting as he wrote the radio adaptation. So what had been 1890s-era England became 1930s-era New Jersey. And it was a task Koch wasn't all that anxious to tackle.
5: I tried to get out of it, actually, because I realized that this would mean a uh, practically original script, just using descriptive matter from the uh, H.G. Wells novel. So I had just six days to do a 60-page script.
0: But once he got to work, Koch started to catch on to Orson Welles' vision.
5: I felt an unusual excitement about it, uh, as though um, they were putting more in it than in the average. I did their weekly programs for five months. And in this case, um, uh, they seemed to be particularly
6: interested in pages would go over and they'd come back with suggestions. Howard Koch buckles down and produces a script that follows the plot of the novel fairly closely, but updates it to the current day, moves the action from England, where the HG Wells novel is set, to the United States. And uh, in keeping with, with Orson Welles's initial concept, takes the first part of the story, the invasion itself, and tells it as a series of, of uh, fake news bulletins.
5: The first thing that I have to decide is Where does the first machine come down? I'd better get a map so I could lay out the campaign. And I was passing through New Jersey and uh, I stopped at a gas station and I got a map. It was a Jersey map. And uh, when I got to the apartment, I spread the map out because I... uh, So I picked up my pencil close my eyes, and put it down on the map. I looked, it's Grover's Mills, New Jersey. The small town of Grover's
0: Mill, located in central New Jersey, wasn't famous for anything, just a place where people lived and worked and raised families, and that was the idea.
5: I thought that had pretty good sound. Grover's Mill was very American, was near Princeton where Professor Pearson could have his astronomical laboratory a good distance from New York. I guess it's one of the few towns that are that's become famous for something that never happened.
2: We made a special effort to make our show as realistic as possible. That is, we reproduced all the radio effects, not only sound effects, but we did on the show exactly what would have happened if the world had been invaded.
6: Wells at that time was very heavily involved in preparing the Mercury Theater's next stage play uh, of the season called Danton's Death. So he didn't have a lot of time in the initial stages of, of developing the show to give a lot of thought to it. So he says War of the Worlds and then he runs to his theatre to keep rehearsing his actors.
5: So I worked day and evening for those six days and Hosman kept taking pages down from my apartment, 72nd Street, to the studio
4: wasn't curious enough, uh, hardly saw that script before the day of the broadcast.
6: The production schedule was incredibly compact. So Howard Koch gets his assignment on a Monday. He's got to turn in a first draft of the script by uh, Wednesday or Thursday, which then was going to be rehearsed and recorded on acetate discs for Wells to listen to. Nobody involved with the Mercury Theatre up until the moment of airtime had any confidence that this show would be any good. They all thought it would be hokey. They all thought it wouldn't be realistic for one reason or another. And so Wells and, and John Hausman and Paul Stewart were sitting around Wells's hotel room trying to figure out what to do. He has this, this radio show that is not coming together.
0: They decided to emphasize what worked best for radio. Wells told Koch to propel the action with more bulletins. He wanted to keep them coming with more frequency, more urgency. He instructed Paul Stewart to sweeten up the sound effects, all in an attempt to bluff their way through it.
6: There was a general consensus that the first part of Koch's script, which was, again, done as a series of fake news bulletins, was more involving, that was Wells's initial concept. The second part of the script, uh, which is done in the first-person singular style of the rest of the The Mercury Theater shows, which is when the survivor, played by Orson Welles, is is wandering through the conquered east coast of the United States. Everybody agreed that that was pretty boring, that was not as involving as the first part. So they made just sort of an, an elementary decision to lengthen the first half of the show and shorten the second, which they could do without too much trouble because... The Mercury Theater did not have a sponsor. You know, there was supposed to be a, a break for station identification at the uh, midpoint of the show, but nobody seems to have objected too strenuously. So the news broadcast portion would work out to be about two thirds of the show. The narration, the monologue, would be the final third. But that means the station break comes about forty minutes in, instead of at the at the halfway mark. And and nobody at the time realized that if anybody had tuned in late and missed the initial announcements explaining what this was, they would have to wait essentially 40 minutes until they got another announcement letting them know that this, this was a fictitious broadcast.
0: Following the rehearsal, on the day of the broadcast, with Wells now fully engaged, there was an air of confidence that took over the studio.
6: Once that rehearsal was done and Wells goes back to the Mercury Theater to keep working on a stage production, that's when everybody involved in the production sort of bands together to try and save the show, to try and pour all of their talents, all of their creative energies into improving what they really think is going to be a lousy production. Just as an example, Frank Reddick, the first voice of The Shadow before Orson Welles, he was... A Regular on the March of Time, impersonating all sorts of important newsmakers, he is cast in the War of the Worlds as the reporter Carl Phillips, who ends up witnessing the the Martians, you know, landing and their first attack on humanity. So it's a crucial role because if that, you know, you're seeing this through Reddick's eyes, uh, by and large, if he can't sell that performance the whole show is not going to work so it's it's a lot in large measure it's resting on him and he does what march of time actors frequently did they would go to the sound recording library they would find as many recordings of that individual as they could find and they would listen to them until they could do a perfect impression frank reddick of course is playing a fictitious character but Uh, The closest thing that he has is Herbert Morrison's recording of the Hindenburg disaster. And so he gets it from the CBS Sound Library, he listens to it over and over again and really internalizes it. And if you compare the Hindenburg recording to Reddick's performance as War of the Worlds, not only are the intonations the same, not only is the emotional sort of tenor of the broadcast uh, exactly the same, but he uses very similar language. Herbert Morrison says, it bursts into flames.
5: Oh, my, get out of the way, please. It's burning, bursting into flames. And,
6: and Frank Reddick, as Carl Phillips says, they're turning into flames. Strike
7: them head on. They're turning into flames. Ah! The whole yeah. by
3: the, woods of fire, the, the
6: gas tank. In the sound effects technicians, uh, Or Nichols, who again was a March of Time veteran, who's one of the great sound effects people of the golden age of radio, really pushes her ingenuity to the limit to try and come up with... You know what does the Martian heat ray sound like? How do you, you know, the the rumor, the the myth, is that the sound of the uh, Martian cylinder unscrewing was her turning a, a pickle jar in a, in a toilet in the CBS bathroom. They loved using bathrooms because of the echoing nature uh, for for sound recordings.
0: When Wells showed up at the studio on, as radio announcers would put it, that fateful evening of October thirtieth, nineteen thirty-eight he had a lot more to work with. The script had been revised and improved. The actors were at the top of their game. The sound effects technicians were ready to bring the Martian invasion to life. And John Hausman remembered all
4: of it. Then, as usual, he, he did wonders. He is largely responsible for what I think is perhaps the most exciting thing about that script, about that show, is the timing of it. And Orson had a sort of, had a courage To do certain to start that show so slowly that you almost couldn't believe anybody would stay with it. If you start that slowly, the audience sort of settles in. And then when it starts to accelerate, they follow you.
0: We will continue our story in a moment.
3: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car.
6: With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: I'm Brian Williams. Welcome back. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury
9: Theater on the air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells.
0: The broadcast begins with Wells setting the scene by explaining that what the audience is about to experience is just a show. That one brief disclaimer, which not all the listeners heard, would ultimately save Wells' career when the lawsuit started flying.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Wells.
8: We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects, vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us.
0: In one of Orson Welles' most inspired touches, the program begins with the sound of society dance music.
9: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen.
3: From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. With a touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Compensita.
0: Then, Orson Welles begins to slowly build the drama and urgency with his series of news bulletins.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars.
0: Shocking news, but it didn't scare anyone. After all, it was happening on another planet, millions of miles away from us. But Wells was just getting started. And to create a sense of events unfolding in real time to make it sound like a normal night on the radio, Wells returns to regular programming, dance music, only to interrupt it again for another bulletin.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual While the
0: Mars invasion is heating up on CBS... NBC is broadcasting the top-rated Sunday night program, The Chase and Sanborn Show, (laughs) starring the ventriloquist Edgar Bergen and his puppet Charlie McCarthy.
5: I may tell you a ghost story? Do you think you can afford it?
0: At about 8.15, Bergen and McCarthy introduce the singer Dorothy Lamar. And after a time, the radio audience gets a little restless. They start searching the radio dial for something else to listen to. When they tune to CBS, this is what they hear: actor Paul Reedick and company preparing to confront Martian invaders.
8: More state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. Wait a minute! Something's happening. Hump shape is rising out of the pit.
3: I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. Strike them head on. Lord, I tell you the plane. The whole field caught
9: by the woods of ah! fires. The, the gas tank tanks, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere, coming this way now, about twenty yards to
4: my right.
6: And that moment. When Carl Phillips is cut off, that's one of the certainly one of the most dramatic moments of the show. And when you read letters or testimonies from people who believe the show to be a real thing, that's one of the moments that frightened them the most or was the most convincing. This is broadcast historian A. Brad Schwartz. Because Wells holds that pause so long. Wells was directing from a podium in the in the center of the room. He's got the orchestra off to one side. He can see into the control room where Hausman is sitting and he's got a music stand in front of him and he's waving his arms like a conductor cueing his actors cueing his his music but in that moment after you know it's about 20 yards to my right and then he's cut off wells has his arms out uh, according to people who were there and just holds the pause for 6 full seconds houseman is you know probably sweating bullets he doesn't he doesn't want this much dead air but wells you know, because he's a brilliant director. He knows the emotional effect he's trying to create. He holds the pause and holds the pause until he's uh, uh, until he's got what he wanted. And a sizable proportion of his audience, whether they knew this was fiction or not, were on the edge of their seats because they had never really heard anything quite like this before.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill.
0: According to a CBS survey, 63% of radio listeners who tuned in after the show started believed what they were hearing was all true. We were indeed being invaded. The CBS switchboard and telephone exchanges across the country soon became inundated with panicked calls. Operators in this AT&T promotional video from 1988 described that night.
7: Every light on that board
5: lit. Now that board was, I would say, almost a half block long. As they were crying and screaming and wanting to know if there, if there was a
2: lot of gas, if there was uh, a lot of destruction, whether it fires,
6: is there a lot of shooting. Meanwhile in the control room where Hausman is and where um, the CBS executive who was supposed to be uh, monitoring the program, a, a fellow by the name of David Taylor, where they are, Around the half-hour mark, again, where you normally would have had a station break, that's when they start getting calls into the control room from people who are upset, who are angry, who want to know this is real. You know, it's and and it takes Hausman in particular a while to sort of realize, you know, what's happening. He hears that the switchboard is lighting up. Some of these calls are coming into the control room. Davidson Taylor leaves. He comes back, white as a sheet wanting an immediate announcement that this is not a a real news event. And by this point, again, it's after the half hour mark, we're close to the sort of 38, 40 minute scheduled station break. It's the most dramatic part of the show, right? Where Ray Collins, uh, the Mercury regular, is playing the announcer on the building, uh, on the top of the broadcasting building, describing the, the arrival of the Martians.
9: I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads. to the north. Hutchison River Parkway still kept open for motor traffic. Void bridges to Long Island hopelessly jammed. All communication with Jersey Shore closed ten minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here
6: to the end. So the last thing Houseman, as a, as a dramatist, wants to do is interrupt the show at this moment. And, and I don't think yet even he would have been quite aware of what was happening. So he talks about you know physically throwing himself in front of the door to the studio to prevent anybody from getting in and, and interrupting what was happening. But by that point, much of the damage had already been done.
8: At this time, we take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency.
0: Radio actor Kenny Del Mar played the role of the U.S. Secretary of the Interior, who spoke in a voice that sounded remarkably similar to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And that's one of the reasons CBS tried to pull that element out of the script for fear that it would seem all too real.
9: I wish to impress upon you, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on
5: this earth.
0: Writer Howard Koch.
5: That was intentional, of course, that the actor did uh, assume Franklin Roosevelt's voice. That was intentional. Yes, I think that we are conditioned to believe what we hear over the mass media um particularly if there's an authority that is speaking and i think this uh, this can be good or this can be bad um depending upon the veracity of what we hear i think um very often that um what we hear uh are uh, the words we hear are quite as mythical as the martians and um I think we have to um, always consider perhaps other sources and weigh what we hear against uh, other sources in our independent judgment.
0: As the calls flooded in from panicked listeners, there was a different kind of panic in the CBS studio. The network was now desperate to pull the plug on the show. At least that's how Orson Welles remembered it, along with his view from inside the studio.
2: About halfway through the show, as we were continuing, we saw that in the control room, there were a great many policemen, and every moment more. A lot of people talking to other people in dumb show, and... A tense atmosphere was generated. We thought, well, something's gone wrong. Some few people have complained and have swallowed what we're telling them about the Martians having come to the world.
9: Rise like a line of new towers on the
2: city's west side.
0: Perhaps the show's most terrifying scene unfolds when reporter Ray Collins is describing the effects of a deadly gas that alien war machines were spreading throughout New York City the gas that apparently killed Ray Collins when he was in the midst of a broadcast
9: Now they're lifting their metal hands This is the end now Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city People in the streets see it now They're running toward the East River, thousands of them Dropping in like rats Now the smoke's spreading faster It's reached Times Square People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're they falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. A uh, hundred yards away. It's 50 feet.
0: Finally, 40 minutes into the broadcast, CBS paused for a station break. And those panicked throngs who had tuned in late finally learned that the terrifying invasion was just a play.
3: You are listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System
6: the CBS brass, were even more concerned about another late addition that Wells seems to have made to the script. And it's this, this curtain speech that he does end up giving at the end. They are concerned that uh, Orson Welles is going to go on and, and, and essentially admit malice to say that his intent was to deceive people, which wasn't really the case.
8: This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character assure you that the war of the world has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be the mercury theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo
6: as he's reading his final lines of the show he is looking through the window at you know a multiplying number of blue uniformed cops and he you know he has no idea is he going to be arrested are they there for him are they you know what is this what is this all about and it's one of the few times in Wells's career, even though, again, he, he maintains his composure, but he does trip over his words uh, in his final speech. He doesn't say the next best thing. He says the best next thing.
8: Starting now, we couldn't open all your windows and steal all your garden gates. By tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business.
0: What Wells doesn't know is that an enraged listener has called in a bomb threat to the CBS studio and the NYPD has arrived to sweep the building for explosives. Again, here's writer Howard Koch.
5: I was so tired that um, I didn't stay at the studio. I went home, listened to it in my apartment and thought, well, they, they did a very good job on it and it sounded quite realistic. <laughs> but I didn't know what was going on all over the country. I just went to sleep. And uh, they tried to rouse me during the night, but I didn't even hear the telephone bell. And the next morning, it uh, was one morning that I had to myself. That was Monday morning after the Sunday night. And I had the time to get a haircut. And... Uh, I walked down 72nd Street and I heard a buzz in the air of invasion, people fleeing and so on. We had war or something and I went in the barbershop and I said, what's happened? Uh, This Germany moved and uh, he laughed. He said, haven't you heard? And he held up a headline of a paper saying, uh, Martian broadcast panics nation. Well. This was a very odd moment for me. Um, First place, I couldn't believe it was real. So you see, in a sense, I was one of the victims.
0: Wells collaborator John Houseman offers his theory as to why listeners were preconditioned
4: to believe the broadcast was true. Two things happened there. One, uh, people had suddenly, for the first time in history, uh, become accustomed to getting their news out of the box instead of out of the papers. That was number one. Number two, uh, the whole atmosphere of crisis and anxiety uh, was still very much alive after Munich, and uh, I think it made it much more easy to be fooled by this broadcast.
0: Princeton University conducted a study of the War of the Worlds broadcast and its impact, Among frightened listeners, only about a third understood the invaders to be Martians. Others had imagined something more plausible, like a Nazi invasion. The writer Howard Koch recalls the common fright factor.
5: The basic psychological reason behind the acceptance was insecurity. Insecurity, personal insecurity, economic insecurity, political insecurity. And uh, the less... Secure people were, um, people out of jobs, like that, the more receptive they were to the uh, panic situation.
2: Orson Welles. We had no idea the extent of the thing, and uh, I certainly personally had no idea what it would mean to me, as in fact, my life was uh, threatened. There was somebody, as a matter of fact, who kept telephoning about every quarter of an hour saying, You will die on the opening night of your play. As a matter of fact, the opening night of my play was the night after the broadcast.
0: As the show ended, CBS Studio One became a madhouse. Fearing lawsuits, fearing the press, not yet able to really measure the true impact of the broadcast, CBS personnel rushed in to collect scripts, recording discs, anything that could be used as evidence against the network. Wells and Houseman were sequestered in a side office... The rest of the Mercury Theatrical Company were herded into a bathroom while a search continued for the alleged bomb. Once police gave the all clear, Houseman and Wells had to fight their way through a crush of print reporters who had packed into the CBS lobby. The producing duo were pelted with questions like, did you hear about all the suicides or what about the car crashes on the Jersey Turnpike? Haussmann later described it as one of the most terrifying experiences of his life. By the time they got into the car, both men were convinced they were responsible for killing as many people as a small war. As they passed through Times Square, they looked up and noticed the illuminated news ticker on the New York Times building. It read, Orson Welles frightens the nation. And in that moment, Welles knew his life would never be the same.
7: You must realize that I, when I left the broadcast last night, I went into a dress rehearsal for a play that's opening in two days, and I've had almost no sleep, and I, I know less about this than you do.
6: As much as he might appreciate seeing his face on uh, the front page of every newspaper in the world, he is also not quite sure that he's not going to end up in jail. So he's walking a very fine line. And when he goes before the press in this this press conference that CBS has arranged, he is putting on an incredible performance, demonstrating his contrition, saying that he is as surprised as everyone else, which I think is true, but also being very careful not to Admit any wrongdoing, any malice, any intent. I didn't know what I was doing. So he is downplaying uh, the extent to which they deliberately tried to make it sound realistic. But at the same time, he is, you know, he's fighting for his professional life and he he definitely knew it.
5: Do you think, Mr. Wells, that you might have taken unfair advantage of the public in using a method as a conveyance for authentic
2: news? I don't believe that I have since it is not a method original with me it is used by many radio programs uh i am terribly shocked by the effect it's had i do not believe that the method is original with me do you think there ought
7: to be a law uh against such uh, enactments as we had last night or as a
2: result of... right. i don't know what the legislation would be i know that almost everybody in radio would do almost anything to avert the kind of thing that has happened myself included but i uh, I don't know what the legislation would be.
0: Here again is the writer Howard Koch.
5: One thing has puzzled me, and that is why we're so willing to believe that creatures from another planet uh, must necessarily be hostile. I think that if we had done a broadcast about Martians coming to Earth and they had been peaceful, I don't think anyone would have believed it. So, and that. I think, uh, if we can draw a lesson from it, is what I would call some xenophobia, which we all have, that is fear of something different, something strange, whether it's a different uh, color, whether it's a different religion, different race, different uh, economic system, different lifestyle. And now I think it's perhaps um, still come down to us that we must be afraid of a person from another planet or another uh, country. And uh, now I think survival depends on quite the opposite, that we um, become uh, perhaps now more receptive to other people. Survival, perhaps, is a matter of uh, cooperation now, rather than uh, competition and hostility. Do you think that this will cause uh, the curbing of uh, radio bulletins on the air today?
2: I simply can't imagine. It seems to me that uh, it caused much legislation. I, don't, I simply don't know. It's it, it, The wisdom of, uh, of radio executives and of, uh, of an organized public will decide these things for us. It's not up to me to speak. I'm the, uh, well, the huh?
9: accused.
2: We weren't as innocent as we meant to be. We were fed up with the way in which everything that came over this new magic box, the radio, was being swallowed. People, you know, do suspect what they read in the newspapers and what people tell them. But when the radio came, and I suppose now television, anything that came through that new machine was believed. So in a way, our our broadcast was an assault on the uh, credibility of that machine. We wanted people to understand that they shouldn't take any opinion predigested, and they shouldn't swallow everything that came through the tap, whether it was radio or not.
0: While War of the Worlds is a phenomenon of a bygone era and of a medium a hundred years old now, its lessons resonate to this day. Think about it. Fake news. Misinformation disinformation think about what orson wells would have done in our world of deep fakes or where the news we're getting is chosen for us by an algorithm that has never met us war of the worlds changed everything and not really for the better as one listener put it following the broadcast in a letter she wrote to the federal communications commission in washington how will we know when news is news or when it's just fiction.
8: So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween.
0: I'm Brian Williams. For more information about this episode and our series, please visit our website, we interrupt weinterruptthisbroadcast.org. Now, please listen to this special message from Bill Curtis about the great work of the Broadcasters Foundation of
1: America. Every day, broadcasters bring us the information and entertainment that enriches our lives and often saves lives. It's not only the person on air. It's the producers, engineers, management, Sales, marketers, camera operators, and more. For more than 70 years, the Broadcasters Foundation of America, a 501c3 charity, has been a safety net, providing financial assistance to broadcasters and their families in acute need from a debilitating illness, tragic accident, or unthinkable catastrophe. Whether a retired broadcaster who can't afford life-saving medications a family struggling to make ends meet after a crippling accident or severe damage from a hurricane to the home of a broadcaster in need, the Broadcasters Foundation has always been there to help those in our industry who need it most. Now more than ever, the Broadcasters Foundation is in need of your donations to continue its charitable mission. Please consider a donation today at BroadcastersFoundation.org. That's BroadcastersFoundation.org. On behalf of all our broadcasters in all areas of our industry, we thank you.